Hey everybody, welcome to Talking Scripture, a podcast where we illustrate relevance and application of the scriptures in Come Follow Me. We also dive into the history and cultures of the text. Thanks for taking the time to share and subscribe to this podcast. For show notes, head over to our website, TalkingScripture.org. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we're going to be in Matthew chapter 4 and Luke 4 and 5. Now, when Mike and I began this New Testament year, we talked about many ways to study the New Testament. One was sequential. You read all of Matthew, you read all of Mark, you read all of Luke, etc. Now, the challenge of that is you don't necessarily get to embellish one person's account with the other person's account. You don't get to see the very best of all of them put together. So that leads to another way to study, and that was harmonious, where you pick an event and you pull all of the accounts together. But that can be crazy keeping track of all the different events. There is no perfect harmony. And so I really like Luke's sequential order. It flows better for me. And in your gospel library or in your print scriptures in the appendix, you will find a gospel harmony. And if you look at that harmony, the one presented in our scriptures, you'll notice that Luke is the one that's in more sequential order than Matthew. And that's why I've stayed with Luke as my backbone, and I pull Matthew in as it matches Luke. Now, the church in Come, Follow Me is following Matthew. If you notice the schedule, it's basically we're just walking through the book of Matthew and pulling in Mark and Luke as it matches Matthew. And this is where Mike and I are going to depart a little bit from the Come, Follow Me manual and materials that the church puts out. We're going to follow Luke. That's just been so natural for me throughout my whole life. And then we'll pull Matthew in as it matches Luke. So I say that because this week you're going to begin to see the discrepancy between what Mike and I present and the materials. For example, the church is waiting until Matthew 8 to talk about the man full of leprosy. Luke presents it in Luke chapter 5, which is this week's Come Follow Me, Luke 5. So Mike and I are going to address it because it comes up in Luke, and we're using Luke kind of as our backbone. We're just going to pull Matthew into Luke rather than Luke into Matthew. And so as we follow Come Follow Me, you'll note that things going on in Luke chapter 4 and 5 are happening later in Matthew. I will say for me, one of the reasons why I see this happening is because Matthew's giving us a fuller sense of the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount's taking several chapters, chapters 5, 6, and 7 of Matthew, and it's the standalone account of that full sermon. I believe it was one continuous sermon. I also believe it's a temple text. And so the things in Matthew chapter 8 are going to be discussed earlier in Luke. Bryce and I just had to make a decision as we're covering these things, but I'm not saying that that's the only way or that's even the right way. There really is no one perfect way. And so be patient with us, and we're going to do it the best we can. But with that out of the way, let's go to Luke chapter 4. Essentially, what we read here is the temptation of Jesus, his experience in the wilderness, his going to Nazareth and showing people who he is, their rejection of him, and then he's going to go down to this place called Capernaum, and it's this little sea village that was about 10,000 people in Jesus's day. Now, when I say it's a little sea village, it's much larger than Nazareth, but it's right there on the coast of what's called the Sea of Galilee, or 
I think probably better appropriately called as the Lake of Galilee, but we'll stick with the way it's described in the gospel accounts as the Sea of Galilee. This little village is where he's going to spend a lot of his time and meet uh, the beginnings of his core group of followers or disciples, starting with a man by the name of Simon, or we'll refer to him as Simon Peter or as Peter. And so that's really chapter four. And then the fifth chapter is his calling more people to come and follow him. And eventually he'll call this individual named, sometimes he's called Levi, sometimes he's called Matthew, he's a tax collector, and his message as to why he's doing things a little bit differently. That's the big picture of these chapters, is the temptation, telling people who he is, being rejected, going down into Capernaum, and picking up his core group of the beginnings of this church or gathering of of followers. So let's start with the temptation. It is phenomenal for us to watch Jesus be tempted, because what we can do is make a list of how he taught me to resist temptation. And I know a lot of people dwell on the three specific temptations. I personally don't. I like to dwell on the resistance. How did Jesus resist? So I like to make a list in my scriptures, and I have listed six items that I have learned about how I can better resist temptation. Now, as you go through this, you're going to notice a lot of Joseph Smith changes. He was very specific to say that Satan is not controlling the narrative here. The Spirit is controlling the narrative, and Satan is coming in after the fact. I think that's very important to notice. I will reference them occasionally, but please note the Joseph Smith changes. But let's start in Luke chapter 4, verse 1. I think this is the very most important, that Jesus was full of the Holy Ghost. There is no greater way to resist temptation than to be filled with the Holy Ghost. The very things that fill us with the Holy Ghost are the power to resist temptation. I remind you of that beautiful verse in the Book of Mormon that says, the natural man is an enemy to God and will be until he yields to the enticings of the Spirit and putteth off the natural man. The way we put off the natural man is to yield to the enticings of the Holy Spirit. So let that be very, very powerfully stated. Number one, Jesus was full of the Holy Ghost. Number two, also in verse one of chapter four, he was led by the Spirit. Be full of the Holy Ghost and then be led by it. I want to distinguish them as separate because Jesus is following the Holy Ghost into the wilderness. He's not going into the wilderness to be tempted. He's being led by the Holy Ghost. Number three on my list is back in Matthew. One of the Joseph Smith changes in Matthew tells us why he went into the wilderness. He did not go into the wilderness to be tempted. If you'll look at footnote 1b, which is the JST of Matthew 4.1, he was led of the Spirit into the wilderness, ready not to be tempted. Joseph changes that. He went into the wilderness to be with God. In other words, a powerful protection against temptation is to have found time to be with God. I remind you of Moses 1, where Moses has that experience with Satan, and he says, look, I can tell the difference between God and you because I felt his glory, and you don't have it. The more you're with God, the more you'll recognize how bad the world tastes. 
I remind you that no one knows they're eating bad food until they taste something better. You have to have tasted the something better. Plan time to be with God. President Nelson has begged that from the beginning of his administration. Seek him out. And then number four is also in a Joseph Smith change in verse 2. Footnote 2c leads us to JST Matthew 4.2. After he had communed with God, he was hungry. So it's not just to seek time to be with him. I think it's important to say, okay, I'm going to go to church because I'll be with him. I'll go to the temple to be with him. But if I really want to resist temptation, I have to take those moments where I'm with him and commune with him. I have to speak to God. Power to resist temptation comes when he speaks to me and I commune with my Heavenly Father. So let me just emphasize those four. Be full of the Holy Ghost. Be led by the Holy Ghost. Take time to be with God and to commune with Him. Now we actually get the exchange between Lucifer and Christ. Back in Luke's account, notice how the devil always uses that word, if. Please understand that Satan is always trying to stir up doubt and questions and fears, if you be the Son of God, as if he's trying to get Christ to question his Messiahship. If you be the Son of God, prove it. Now, notice how the Savior responds to every single trial. I'm in Luke chapter 4, verse 2 is the trial to make the stones into bread. He responds, it is written. The next few verses are the kingdoms of the world, and all these things will I give you if you worship me. Jesus responds in verse 8, it is written. And then in the next few verses is the temptation to fall, and the angels will catch you. Prove that God is with you manifest your messiahship by jumping and watching the angels catch you. Verse 12, he responds, it is written. So where did Jesus find power to resist temptation? He had spent time in the scriptures. He studied the scriptures. Now, let me give you a beautiful Book of Mormon verse very related to that same idea, that the scriptures became a source of strength Listen to what Jacob says about kind of the Scriptures. He says in Jacob 4, 6, Wherefore we search the prophets. Now, where do you and I search the prophets? That's why I'm pointing to the Scriptures. We search the prophets and have many revelations and the spirit of prophecy. And having all these witnesses, we obtain a hope, and our faith becometh unshaken insomuch that we can truly command in the name of Jesus and the very trees obey us or the mountains or the waves of the sea. There's a confidence, there's a hope that comes from searching the prophets, knowing the scriptures, knowing the doctrine. I find it fascinating that after that whole episode with Sherem, after that ends, they make a point of searching the scriptures as if to say, boy, this really would have made a difference. 
It's also significant that Alma, when he's approaching the Zoramites, which is another apostate group, says we got to try the virtue of the word. I think the Savior's actions in the Book of Mormon are very clear here, that the Scriptures will give you power to resist temptation. Allow me to quote President Ezra Taft Benson, who said it at a time in my life where I was young and the Scriptures had not yet taken a prominent place in my life. But I'll never forget how I felt when he said this. President Benson said, It's not just that the Book of Mormon teaches us truth, though it indeed does that. It's not just that the Book of Mormon bears testimony of Christ, though it indeed does that too. But there is something more. There is a power in the book which will begin to flow into your lives the moment you begin a serious study of the book. You will find greater power to resist temptation. There it is, right there in print. You will find greater power to resist temptation. You will find the power to avoid deception. You will find the power to stay on the straight and narrow path. When you begin to hunger and thirst after these words, you will find life in greater and greater abundance. Number five, Jesus knew the scriptures and quoted them, and that gave him power to resist temptation. You know, I think the context is Deuteronomy 8, and I think that's really what Jesus is doing is he's channeling Deuteronomy 8 in his rebuttal to Satan. And if we go to Deuteronomy 8, we actually read some of the rebuttals that Jesus gives right in the text. I mean, we read in verse 3, man doth not live by bread only, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of the Lord doth man live. And then there's a lot of stuff going on in Deuteronomy 8 about beware of pride, don't forget the Lord. That's verse 11. Verse 17 and 18 talks about, oh, you want wealth and power? Well, who's the source? And what's interesting is we have kind of a reversal here. We have Moses leading the Israelites out of the wilderness into a settled state. And remember, the land of Canaan is land of milk and honey. And we have Jesus going into the wilderness. And so I kind of like that he's tempted. Now, the reason why I say that is that word in the Greek can mean test or prove. This idea of him being tempted could be, you know, him showing his metal, him showing himself that he can do it. I mean, we have the 40 days. He's there for 40 days. Well, how long are the Israelites in the wilderness? 40 years. That number 40 is associated with literally trials of life in the way that some of the Jews looked at the letters and in, in the characters in their alphabet. The letter Mem, which kind of has this wave on top, was the number 40. And Mayim is the word for water. Yam's the word for sea. And it has this water on the top, that wave on the top of the Mem. That's literally where we get in English, the letter M kind of has that wave on top. Well, the sea was the sea of chaos, the time of trial when things aren't settled. Jesus is in the 40. He is the embodiment of this. And he's just got to find his way to get through it. Biblical scholar R.T. France writes, The most significant key to the understanding of the story is to be found in Jesus' three scriptural quotations. 
All of them come from Deuteronomy chapters 6 through 8, the part of Moses' address to the Israelites before their entry into Canaan, in which he reminds them of their 40 years of wilderness experiences. It has been a time of preparation and of proving the faithfulness of their God. He has deliberately put them through a time of privation as an educative process. They have been learning, or should have been, what it means to live in trusting obedience to God. Now, another son of God is in the wilderness. This time it's Jesus. This time it's for 40 days rather than 40 years as a preparation for entering into his divine calling. There in the wilderness, he, Jesus, faces those exact same tests, and he has learned the lessons which Israel has so imperfectly grasped. I like that reading by R.T. France of trying to put Jesus' experience next to the Israelites' experience. I think the gospel writers knew this, and I think this is another indication that they're trying to show Jesus as the embodiment of the fulfillment of the Old Testament. The Old Testament is important. It must be read. I think the New Testament doesn't make as much sense if we don't know the Old Testament. And so as we know that group of texts and we read the Gospels and we read how they're crafting their presentation of the Messiah's life, we can gain a greater appreciation for who he is and what he is trying to do. And this is going to be the end message in today's podcast old and new wineskins and old and new wine. And what does that mean to follow Jesus in the first century? And what does it mean for us today? As Latter-day Saints, sometimes we get attacked because, hey, you're, you're reading the text differently than we do. We have centuries of tradition as we understand all these things from the Trinity to the sufficiency of Scripture. Everything is within the bounds of this text that has this binding on it, thus saith the tradition. And Joseph Smith stands and says, well, no, there's actually some more things happening. And even within that, sometimes there are members of the church who point back to some of the early brethren and say, we need to do it that way. So-and-so prophet many years ago said this, and that's a contradiction to what's being taught today. What is current prophet teaching? And sometimes we hold to dead prophets at the expense of a current prophet. So we're all guilty of this in one way or another if we're not careful. Old wine, new bottles, new wine, old bottles. So we've got to be open, having new eyes, having fresh eyes, seeing things anew, as it were. Now be prepared for Satan's subtlety and his craftiness, because notice what he does in verse 10. He throws that right back in Jesus's face. In his temptation, he says, if thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down from hence, for it is written. So be prepared for Satan to twist those very scriptures and throw them right back at you. Know them well enough that you're not susceptible to the twisting of the scriptures or lifting them out of context. That's when you become unshaken, is when I know them well enough to recognize when truth has been twisted out of context. But that's what Satan's going to do here. He's going to twist it completely out of context and use that very phrase back at Jesus to say, for it is written. So that leads me to my number six. Notice every single time he reveals what his focus is. When he says it is written, he's quoting verses that tell us what is in his heart and that when that's in our heart, we will find power to resist temptation. And the first one, they're all W words. The first one, back in Luke chapter 4, verse 4, 
having my eye single to the Word of God will help me resist temptation. He reveals that his heart was focused on the Word of God. Now, the second time he quotes the Scriptures, it's a different W word. Verse 8, it's the worship of God. He says, thou shalt worship the Lord thy God. The third one is an implied W. It's the negative that I'm going to turn positive. The third one in verse 12, he says, it is said, it is written, thou shalt not tempt. But if I'm not tempting God, what am I doing? I think of that great verse in Jacob chapter 4 that says, seek not to counsel the Lord, but to receive counsel from him. And so I think Jesus is revealing that his heart was set on the will of God. There's my W word. That Jesus had his eye fixed on the word of God, the worship of God, and the will of God. I want to do what Heavenly Father wants me to do. One of my favorite statements from the Savior will be given in John chapter 8, where he says, I do always those things that please him. It was the will of his Father that governed his life. And when the Word of God, the worship of God, and the will of God govern our lives, we will have power to resist temptation. Now, let me show you the result. The result of those six things, let me repeat them just to make sure. Number one, be full of the Holy Ghost. Be led by the Holy Ghost. Seek opportunities to be with God and to commune with God. And then know your scriptures so that you can use the power of the scriptures to resist temptation. And then number six, keep your focus on the word of God, the worship of God, and the will of God. If you do that, the natural result is power. I love verse 14 of chapter four. Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit into Galilee. And I think that's what I would pull out of this week's Come Follow Me is Jesus faced temptation like we all do, but here's how he resisted it. Here's what gave him power over those temptations. I like this quote by David O. McKay where he says, Now, nearly every temptation that comes to you and me comes to us as one of these three things. A temptation of the appetite, number one. Two, a yielding to the pride and fashion and vanity of those alienated from the things of God, or three, a gratifying of the passion or a desire for the riches of the world or power among men. And if you look at these temptations, I think that David O. McKay's onto something here. And in every one of them, I think Jesus could say, you know what? I am hungry. I could use some bread. Or the Lord should help me out. He should have my back. We read in verse 9, he brought him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. That word in Matthew chapter 4 verse 5 literally is upon the little wing of the temple. Probably the highest point on the temple structure is probably where he is. And that spot probably would have been part of the sanctuary building itself, which was about 50 meters high, or perhaps even over the temple's outer portico on the east, which overhung the deep Kidron Valley. So if you would have stood there and looked down over the edge, the Kidron Valley really descended. Now, we think it went way down further in Jesus' day than it is if you go visit it today, because we've had 2,000 years of settling, and the Kidron is a lot less steep. But even now, it's pretty steep. So he probably would have been pretty high up there. 
And so the suggestion essentially, I think that the adversary is saying to him is, hey, you're special. The Lord should help you out. And I think sometimes we could fall into that temptation when things are hard or when we think, you know what, I should be noticed. I should be taken more better care of. And I think sometimes we get into that state where maybe we feel sorry for ourselves or we feel like we're being overlooked. Uh, Certainly, I think that's a temptation that many of us could fall into. And so after that, we read, all these things I will give you, Matthew chapter 4, verse 9, if you will fall down and worship me. And I find this so ironic because essentially he's offering him something that he can't give him, right? (laughs) He can't even give it to him. I love this quote by James E. Talmadge where he says, we need not concern ourselves with conjecture as to whether Satan could have made good his promise in the event of Christ doing him homage. Certainly, it is Christ who could have reached out and gathered to himself the wealth and the glory of the world had he willed to do so, and thereby have failed in his messianic mission. This fact Satan knew full well. Many men have sold themselves to the devil for a kingdom, and less, I, even for a few paltry pence. That's a great quote. I mean, in essence, what's your integrity worth? And is it worth the kingdoms of this world? And Talmadge's assessment is we sell it for a lot less. Let me give you Farrar's take on that same idea. In his book, The Life of Christ, Frederick Farrar says, There are some that will say that we are never tempted with kingdoms. It may well be, for it needs not be that he tempt us with kingdoms when less will serve. It was Christ only that was thus tempted. In him lay an heroical mind that could not be tempted with small matters, but with us it is nothing so. For we esteem more basely of ourselves. We set our wares at a very easy price. Lucifer may buy us even dagger cheap. He need never carry us so high as the mount. The pinnacle is high enough. Yea, the lowest steeple in all the town would serve the turn. Or let him but carry us to the leads and the gutters of our own houses. Nay, let us but stand in our windows or our doors. If he will give us so much as we can see there, he will tempt us thoroughly. We will accept it and thank him too. A matter of half a crown or ten groats, a pair of shoes or some such trifle will bring us on our knees to the devil. Yes, exactly. And Bryce, I love how you mentioned in verse 14, he returned in the power of the Spirit into Galilee. I like that. So with that, he's now going to go to Nazareth. Now, Nazareth is this very small village. It's it's really a footnote, even in Jesus's day. It's up in the foothills above the Sea of Galilee, and he goes into the synagogue. Now, this was common that you would go into the synagogue, and people had the opportunity to read. And so Jesus is invited to come up I'm reading from Luke chapter 4, verse 17. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Esaias. Now that's Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering the sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, and he gave it to the minister, and he sat down, and the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began to say unto them, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. And they all bear him witness and wondered at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, 
Is not this Joseph's son? And I want to pause right there because Jesus is quoting Isaiah 61. Now, it's not a perfect quote. We have in the Luke account this part where he says, the recovering of the sight to the blind. That's not in Isaiah 61. But we also have a really interesting phrase in Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 3, where we read this, that this individual will bind up the brokenhearted, proclaim liberty to the captives, and then it reads, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound. Now, both accounts say to preach or to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. The account in Luke reads, to set at liberty them that are bruised. But the Isaiah account says, the opening of the prison to them that are bound. I'm just going to say this. I think Jesus is quoting the Hebrew text, and I think Luke doesn't quite get it right. That's my take. To set at liberty them that are bruised, that's good. But I think that he's probably reading it more like the opening of the prison to them that are bound. That's just my reading of it. When I teach this passage, and when I talk about Nazareth and this experience at the synagogue, I always go to Isaiah 61, and I read this. And I read it for a couple of reasons. One of them is this. We don't have Jesus going to prison doors and setting people free. What's interesting, if you're an individual who likes to watch The Chosen, there's this one bit in The Chosen where John's incarcerated, John the Baptist, and there's this zealot that's following Jesus that says to Jesus, I can break him out. I know some people. And they're having this conversation like, are we going to break him out of prison? And I kind of pause and I, I look at my wife and I say, Jesus came to set us free from prisons but not those kinds of prisons. And I love the way the chosen directors have chosen to tell the story about Jesus is healing people, but it's not so much about the physical, but the spiritual healing. And so my reading of this part in Isaiah where it says the opening of the prison to them that are bound is that this is fulfilled through his death and resurrection, that those that are dead will one day come back to life. And when our spirits and our bodies are separated, there's this wonderful line in the Revelations of the Restoration where the prophet Joseph Smith says that those that do not have their bodies anymore that are in the spirit world, look at that state as a kind of bondage because they want to have their bodies and to be reunited, flesh and spirit put back together. And Jesus is really encapsulating his whole ministry just in this little teeny space of about three verses in Isaiah. He's teaching them who he is and what he is to do. Yeah. This is Jesus walking in, grabbing the scriptures, and from his own lips saying, this is what I came to do. It's my mission statement. This is what I will do in your life if you let me in. That picture of him knocking on the door and there's no door handle, this is the invitation. This is what I will do if you will let me in. I will heal. I will preach. I will teach. I will free you of all the bondage that you find yourself in. I will make you acceptable to the Lord in that year. I will open your eyes. I will heal you. It's just a beautiful little moment. But they rejected that offer because that's just Joseph's son. It was fear and doubt. They reduced him to just this neighbor that they'd seen their whole life. That's just Joseph's son. Don't let your doubt of his ability to do it prevent him from being able to do it. Sometimes it's not him we doubt. It's the fact that I doubt that he can save me, 
Don't be one of those that says, isn't this just Joseph's son, the carpenter boy that we saw with his father all those years? He can't do all those wonderful things. Not with me. Now, we're going to address this a little bit more in Luke 5 in just a moment, but I want you to just see the theme as it's developing at the pen of Luke. He's recognizing that many of us miss out on blessings. And some of the reasons we miss out on those blessings is because we doubt the person giving them, and we don't receive his gift. And he mentions a couple of examples. He said, only one person received Elijah. Only one person was faithful enough to receive Elijah and his blessing. Only one leper was healed by Elisha. So many others missed out on the blessing because they rejected the blesser. And Luke is trying to plead with us not to do that. Help your family, help your children, help your class understand that we watch people do this all the time. I I work with the youth in our stake with a mission prep class. And so many times we think, I'm going to be the best missionary when I get to Russia or when I get to Mexico. And we always say, you can be a missionary right now while you're in high school. You know that kid you're sitting next to in class? Go be a minister now. The person right closest to you is a treasure, a pearl of great price. It kind of goes both ways. Don't see them as just Joseph's son, the carpenter. Right. They need the gospel just as much as the people in Russia that you're being sent to. Beautiful analogy. The Book of Mormon verse that I want to take you to is in Alma chapter 33. It's Alma's rendition of the brass serpent in the Old Testament. In verse 19, he says, He was spoken of by Moses, yea, and behold, a type was raised up in the wilderness that whosoever would look upon it might live. And many did look and live. Now, here's the tragedy in the next verse. But few understood the meaning of those things, and this because of the hardness of their hearts. Now, I'm going to modernize it. But there are many who are so hardened that they will not look. Therefore, they're going to perish. Now, the reason they won't look is because they don't believe it will heal them. But Jesus really is able to heal and deliver, and bring freedom from captivity in so many forms. Open the door. Don't wait till the house is clean and you're in your Sunday clothes. Open the door when you most need him, when the house is a disaster and you're dripping with mud. Yeah, excellent stuff. And so after he says these things, if you read in Luke 4.28, it reads, All they in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath. And they rose up and thrust him out of the city and led him unto the brow of the hill whereon their city was built, that they might cast him down headlong. Now, Nazareth is situated in a hilly region above the Sea of Galilee, and there's a place you can go visit right now in Nazareth called Mount Precipice, and you can stand where tradition tells us that the individuals that rejected him in Nazareth were to cast him down, and it really is quite the drop-off, and it's this beautiful view over the valley, and it's this location where we think Jesus was taken to be literally thrown down the hill. So 
they're about to, to cast him off this, it's called the brow of the hill. And they rose up, verse 29, and they thrust him out of the city and led him unto the brow of the hill whereon their city was built, that they might cast him down headlong. They're going to throw him over the precipice. And then all of a sudden, he passing through the midst of them went his way. Something is missing, right? He's been grabbed by an angry mob that are marching him to his death. They're going to throw him off a cliff and kill him. And then he just passes through them. Something is missing. Now, I don't know that we'll ever fully know the story, but I just absolutely love how Frederick Farrar explains this. It's just absolutely beautiful. This is from his life of Christ. He says, Perhaps his silence, perhaps the calm nobleness of his bearing, perhaps the dauntless innocence of his gaze overawed them. Apart from anything supernatural, there seems to have been in the presence of Jesus a spell of mystery and majesty which even his most ruthless and hardened enemies acknowledged, and before which they voluntarily bowed. It was to this that he owed his escape when the maddened Jews in the temple took up stones to stone him. It was this that made the bold and bigoted officers of the Sanhedrin unable to arrest him arrest him as he taught in public during the Feast of Tabernacles at Jerusalem. It was this that made the armed band of his enemies, at his mere look, fall before him to the ground in the Garden of Gethsemane. Suddenly, quietly, he asserted his freedom, waved aside his captors, and overawing them by his simple glance, passed through their midst unharmed. Similar events have occurred in history, and continue still to occur. And then this beautiful summary. There is something in defenseless and yet dauntless dignity that calms even the fury of a mob. I want to read that again, because as we valiantly just try to do what's right, as we valiantly try to serve, if you go on a mission, especially to a scary part of the world, but you do your very best to serve faithfully, there is something in defenseless and yet dauntless dignity that calms even the fury of a mob. They stood, stopped, inquired, were ashamed, fled, separated. I think that was exactly what happened in Richmond Jail when Joseph Smith was incarcerated there, and he sat there night after night listening to these horrible stories of what those men had done in the Mormon War. One night, he could take it no longer, and even though he was chained and without a weapon, he stood up and said, "'Silence, ye fiends of the infernal pit.'" In the name of Jesus Christ, I rebuke you and command you to be still. I will not live another minute and hear such language. Cease such talk, or you and I die this instant. Parley P. Pratt, who was with him that night, said the following. He ceased to speak. He stood erect in terrible majesty, chained and without a weapon, calm, unruffled, and dignified as an angel. He looked upon the quailing guards whose weapons were lowered or dropped to the ground, whose knees smote together and who, shrinking into a corner or crouching at his feet, begged his pardon and remained quiet till a change of guards. 
I have seen the ministers of justice clothed in magisterial robes and criminals arraigned before them while life was suspended on a breath in the courts of England. I have witnessed a Congress in solemn session to give laws to a nation. I have tried to conceive of kings, of royal courts, of thrones and crowns, and of emperors assembled to decide the fate of kingdoms. But dignity and majesty have I seen but once, as it stood in chains at midnight in a dungeon in an obscure village in Missouri." You can harness that power through righteousness. The one lesson the Lord says that the Latter-day Saints have a difficult time learning is that the powers of heaven are inseparably connected to the righteousness of the saints. Those powers cannot be controlled only upon principles of righteousness. But there is power in defenseless and yet dauntless dignity that calms even the fury of a mob. This is one of my favorite moments of the Savior's life. And when you are engaged in His work, that power is with you. Trust your children when they go out to the mission field. Trust righteousness. Trust that there is power in righteousness that heals and calms and helps and blesses. Of that I stand as a witness. It has happened many times in my life. I think this is a beautiful little gem of this week's Come Follow Me. And so with his rejection, he leaves Nazareth. He escapes, and he goes into this place that's called Capernaum. He goes down into Capernaum in verse 31 of Luke chapter 4. It's called a city of Galilee, and it talks about him teaching on the Sabbath days and the people being astonished at his doctrine for his word was with power. Now, Capernaum was, and we have a picture of it for you in the slides, looking from the north. So in this picture, we're looking at, it's almost like this uh, aerial shot of Capernaum looking south, and in the background, we have the Sea of Galilee, and you can actually see a really early synagogue there in the picture with a modern church to the left, and then there's all these ruins in this picture. Capernaum is a really interesting name for a city, and it's kind of spelled a couple different ways in the Greek. A lot of times it's spelled with a pi, so it makes that pu sound, Capernaum, but it's also written with a phi, so it's Capharnum. It's a transliteration from the Hebrew, which is Kafar and Nahum. Now, Kafar is that word for village, but Kafar also is that, we've talked about that word Kafar, can mean covering or to overlay. And then we have Nahum. Now, Nahum is also very similar to Naham. Nahum is rest or comfort, and Naham is rest or peace. And so we have this covering of peace or this covering of comfort or a village of comfort probably is the best translation. But I find this very interesting. Now, this is just my Mike Day geek out weirdness. But we have these two words, Kafar and Naham. What do we have? We have the Son of God who's going to perform the atonement. He's going to cover us in peace or comfort. And what do we have here? We have the bulk of Jesus's miraculous experiences where he's showing forth his power in and around Capernaum. I, I don't think it's just a coincidence. It really is a beautiful setting. And this is where the Savior spent a lot of his time. 
And probably the closest thing to the Sea of Galilee that I could explain to those that live in Utah is there's this place called Bear Lake. That's kind of my experience at the Sea of Galilee. But if you've never been to Bear Lake, think of a beautiful lake, just a tranquil place where it's green, just beautiful, lots of water. A lot of times when we talk about Israel and we talk about the wilderness of Judea and we talk about the desert, it certainly has that in parts of Israel. But if you go to the Sea of Galilee, it really is beautiful and picturesque. And this is where the Savior spent a lot of his time amongst these people. In the time of Jesus, it had about 10,000 people living there. The, one of the main industries here was fishing. There was the, a presence in Capernaum of a Roman post. There was a customs post there as well with a local administrative center. So we have a tax collection happening here in Capernaum. Jesus is going to meet Matthew, the tax collector, and the core group of his early followers. Now, Mike, Matthew's version of this is really beautiful. Back in Matthew 4, he says, Jesus went about all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing all manner of sickness and all manner of disease among the people. And his fame went throughout all Syria, and they brought unto him all sick people that were taken with diverse diseases and torments and those that were possessed with devils and those which were lunatic, and those that had the palsy, and he healed them. That is so symbolic of what he came to do and what he's offering to do in all of our lives. Those that are tormented, those that are diseased, and I am certainly one of those, those that have devil influences or lunatics and palsies and broken, he wants to heal. In Luke's account of this, it'll come up a little bit later in chapter 4, Luke 4.40. When the sun was setting, all they that had any sick with diverse diseases brought them unto him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. That's Capernaum. That's Galilee. Coming into Galilee is such an interesting contrast to Nazareth, where he offered them that healing, but because he was Joseph's son, because he was just a carpenter, he was not able to do the healings in Nazareth that he was able to do in Capernaum. Interesting contrast in that very same chapter. Yeah. And so as he goes into Capernaum and he's teaching the gospel of peace or comfort, one of the first people that he meets, which is interesting, he meets an individual that has an unclean devil. That's verse 33 of Luke chapter 4. And the Greek holds in this rendering of the 34th verse. The individual says, saying, let us alone. What have we to do with thee, thou Jesus, son of Nazareth? Art thou come to destroy us? I know thee who thou art, the Holy One of God. And we read in verse 35, Jesus rebuked him, saying, Hold thy peace and come out of him. And when the devil had thrown him in the midst, he came out of him and hurt him not. And they were all amazed, and they spake among themselves, saying, What a word is this? For with authority and power he commandeth the unclean spirits, and they come out. And the fame of him went out into every place of the country round about. Now, Matthew writes about this as well, is that the fame of Jesus spreads all the way up to Tyre, beyond Jordan, 
all the way down into Jerusalem and the regions round about. That's kind of the message about who Jesus is because the word spreads. So we read that the people in Capernaum don't want him to leave. And he says, essentially, I've got to go. So go to the end of Luke 4, and this is what it reads. When it was day, he departed and went into a desert place. And the people sought him and came unto him and stayed him that he should not depart from them. And he said unto them, I must preach the kingdom of God to other cities also, for therefore am I sent. And he preached in the synagogues of Galilee. Now, Jesus is speaking in this verse, verse 43, of the kingdom of God. And he's, he does use the Greek word day, this word that means expedient or necessary. He basically says, I've got to go. Here's my translation of that verse, of verse 43. Even to other cities, it is expedient that I bring the good news of the kingdom of God, since this is the reason why I am sent. The kingdom of God is a really big deal in the Gospels. It's a concern of Luke. It actually, this phrase, the kingdom of God, actually appears 31 times in the book of Luke and six times in the book of Acts. Now remember, Luke is writing Luke and Acts, the Acts of the Apostles. I call the Acts of the Apostles Luke Part 2. So if you look at those two books, 37 times Luke is talking about the kingdom. Now the kingdom of God is its meaning can be complex because it has both a present and a future element and context. And at any point, the emphasis, you kind of have to go by context to understand, okay, what are we emphasizing? Are we emphasizing the future element of the kingdom of God or the present? Or is it both? And the answer is, well, I think it depends on the context. And one of the things that the kingdom of God or its message is, is that it's here, but it's also not yet. It's present, but it's also in the future. And this is a really important thing. It's an important theme for Luke and the other gospel writers. I like this description of the kingdom of God coming right out of our Bible dictionary. As members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, we have some really good stuff in our Bibles, and the Bible dictionary is one of them. And in the Bible dictionary, it says, these terms are used in various combinations and with various meanings. So when we talk about the kingdom of God, what are we talking about? The Bible dictionary says, generally speaking, the kingdom of God on the earth is the church. It is a preparation for the greater kingdom, the celestial kingdom, or the kingdom of heaven. Now, the scriptures often designate that as the church of the firstborn. Now, that's not commonly used here in the New Testament, but it is in the Doctrine and Covenants. It is used. This is the manner in which these terms are used in section 65 of the Doctrine and Covenants. However, the kingdom of heaven is sometimes used in scripture to mean the church, meaning the true church on the earth being the path to heaven, and being the kingdom of heaven on the earth. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is the kingdom of God on the earth, but is at its present limited to an ecclesiastical kingdom. During the millennial era, the kingdom of God will be both political and ecclesiastical, and will have worldwide jurisdiction in political realms when the Lord has made, quote, a full end of all nations. So with that in mind, the kingdom of God is so important to understand in the theological mindset of the authors of the Gospels. You see, the kingdoms of this world are doing their thing, 
But from the perspective of the authors of the Gospels, the kingdom of God is here now. And the reason why it's here now is because they're standing in the presence of their king. And wherever Jesus goes, it doesn't matter. The kingdom of God is there. If you're at the foot of the cross and he's on it, you're with the kingdom of God. The king is on the tree and he will come back. When Jesus says, I've got to go preach the kingdom of God, my reading of this is multivalent. There's many ways to read this, but being in Jesus's presence is the kingdom of God. But on the earth today, Jesus is not walking amongst us, but the kingdom of God is among us if we're reading his words and we're living the tenets, the attributes of what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom of God. We are in the kingdom. And to me, this is just Mike Day packaging, I don't necessarily think it matters what church you're in. Of course, we want them to be baptized into the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We want to bring them into the kingdom of God. But there's a lot of people that don't have access to the missionaries. And you know what? They can still have the kingdom of God with them as they live like a resident of the kingdom of God. And think about this. If Jesus were to come today and draw a line of demarcation around a certain area and say, here's the kingdom of God, the soil... The ground doesn't even matter if we don't have people who can live in the kingdom. And so to me, as I read the Gospels and I read Jesus preaching the message of the kingdom, really, he's talking about living that life. And it doesn't matter if Rome's in charge. It doesn't matter if I'm in a war-torn country, because the kingdom of God is with us when we're living the life of a resident of the kingdom of God. Nephi's version of this is in 1 Nephi 14, there are, save it be, two churches, the church of the Lamb and the church of the devil. And if you're not in the church of the Lamb, you're in the church of the devil. For that to be applicable worldwide would have to break down barriers of modern-day churches as we see them, that there are people who belong to other churches who actually do worship in the church of the Lamb. And there might be people who worship in his restored church here on earth, but really aren't part of the church of the Lamb. And so I think there's a lot of scriptural backing for what you're saying, Mike. Yeah, it's an already not yet quality, and yet it's already here if you're doing these things. That's why, to me, the Gospels, Bryce, have perpetual relevance. And if we're going to do that, we're going to need people to help. We're going to need fishers of men. And so that flows right into chapter 5, where he calls helpers. He can't do this alone. He calls helpers. Now, the reason I love Luke's account, this is missing in Matthew's account, is the little story that happens before the calling. He gets into their boat. He teaches a little bit. And then he says to Simon, launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a draught. Now, Peter has been fishing all night. He has not had success. He says in verse 5, this is Luke 5, 5, Master, we have toiled all the night and have taken nothing. Now, I love the very next word. Nevertheless, at thy word... I will take down the net. We need a lot more nevertheless moments in our life where Jesus says, do this. And my instinct is to second guess because I don't think that would be successful. Nevertheless, at thy word, I will let down the net. Now, when he does, when they throw their nets in, it encloses a great multitude of fish and the nets start to break. 
they call their partners, which I'm assuming are probably James and John, the sons of thunder, over to help them. And they fill both ships to the point where they begin to sink. Now, why does he call them in that setting? Why is that the setting? The largest haul of fish Peter's probably ever had is the setting. He is about to cash in these fish. Fishing's good, and he can make a lot of money. Now, some people have speculated that it was a test. Will you walk away from this at its peak of success? I think there's something to that. But to me, I have connected verses 6 and 7 with verse 10. There's a line in my scriptures that connect these two ideas. I believe what Jesus is saying is, if this is thrilling to catch fish like this, wait till you catch men. The glory of the kingdom is greater than this exciting moment where you're bringing in the largest haul you've ever seen. You think this is exciting? Catch a person. Catch a child of God and bring them to Christ, and you will experience a thrill far greater than this. To me, that's the storyline. He gives them just the greatest success, and then he says, wait, you haven't seen anything yet. Wait till you get involved in the work of my kingdom. Wait till you catch people. Now, notice what happens. They forsook all and followed him. That's going to be a common theme in this week's Come Follow Me. As he calls his disciples, they give up their everything. When he calls Levi in verse 27, he left all and rose up and followed him. They give up their everything and they follow him. Now, the very next story is kind of a contrast to that, that freely going with Jesus and freely running where he invites. And that's why I love the location of these two stories is, come follow me, and they freely go. And then there's this hesitant story next. So in Luke chapter 5, verse 12, one of my absolute favorite moments of the New Testament, it came to pass when he was in a certain city, behold, a man full of leprosy. I think that's significant. This isn't leprosy in its beginning stages. This is a man full of leprosy who has been isolated from society because he will corrupt society. Now, I want you to see the symbolism. Sometimes we think Jesus will act towards me as if I had leprosy. I know many people. I love many people who are terrified and they, they fear approaching him because he will run the opposite direction. I've had students use phrases like, after what I've done, I don't think he wants to save me. He knows me intimately. He knows all that I've ever done wrong. And there's this hesitancy. I don't know if he'll heal me. And here's that reality, a man full of leprosy, expecting everyone, including Jesus, to run away. Notice he says, Lord, if thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. Let me paraphrase. Think about what this man knew and tell me what this man doubted. What this man knew is that he could. 
What he doubted is that he would. Now, how many of you listening to my voice right now know Jesus can do all the things that he listed back in Nazareth? I know he can heal. I know he can forgive. I know he can cause marvelous miracles in my life. I know he can answer my prayers. But how many of you wonder if he will, if he wants to? Other people, perhaps, but maybe not to me. I know he can. I just don't know if he will. Then you need to hear the rest of this story. You need to hear from his own voice what he says. First of all, you need to see what he did. He did not run away from the man full of leprosy. In fact, he ran towards him and touched him, which no one else in that society would have been willing to do. And isn't that ironic that the one person who knows the most about me, who knows all the negative sides of me, is not disappointed in me, but wants to help me the most. We turn our sins into an expectation of disappointment from him. But he is not disappointed in us. He is not ashamed of us. He simply wants to help. And so he did what no one else would do. He went towards a leper. He touched him. And he said, I will. He was confirming that he can, and he was testifying that he will. He can, and he will. But so many people who have faith and lack hope, believe that he can do miraculous things, just not to them. And I implore every one of you, and those of you who teach people who doubt this, I implore you to teach them that he can and he will bless them. I want to give you the church's definition of hope as given in Preach My Gospel. It's in chapter 6, How Do I Develop Christ-Like Attributes? It says, Hope is an abiding trust that the Lord will fulfill His promises to you. It is manifest in confidence, optimism, enthusiasm, and patient persevering. It is believing and expecting that something will occur. When you have hope, you work through trials and difficulties with the confidence and assurance that all things will work together for your good. Hope helps you conquer discouragement. This wonderful little story with this man full of leprosy is recorded in the New Testament so that you have hope. This story is a burning testimony that he rushes towards the sinner not away from the sinner. He yearns to help rather than criticize and critique and shame. His whole goal is to bless us. He really does want to bless us. And I testify that not only can he, but he will. You, with all the flaws you possess, expect something from him. Understand that it's going to come in his way and in his time, but expect 
a blessing. And President Nelson has been saying that repeatedly, that we can expect a blessing from him, and that's hope. He can and he will. Powerful message. And so after he heals him, we read this in Luke 5.14. He charged him to tell no man, but go and show thyself to the priest and offer for thy cleansing according as Moses commanded for a testimony unto them. But so much the more went there a fame abroad of him and great multitudes came together to hear and to be healed by him of their infirmities. And so because of this, verse 16 says, he withdrew himself into the wilderness and prayed. I want to just stop and look at that for a minute, that part in verse 14 where he says, to tell no man. Now, we really don't know why. He doesn't really say why. But biblical scholars have tried to analyze this and say, okay, what are some reasons why he might say this? And one of them could be that he wants the individual to be silent until he is officially declared to be clean. There was a process in the Mosaic Law, and it's actually outlined in Leviticus, and there's a footnote even in your scriptures, 14a, Leviticus 14. If you go there, there's quite the process to be declared clean. And so what do we read? In one sense, we read Jesus following the law as it was written. Here he's having this individual follow the law, go to the priest and show that you're clean. And so maybe he was telling him to be silent until it was official. He was officially declared clean. Another possibility is that he wanted to prevent excessive popular excitement as a result of his healing ministry. Now, we're going to see this a little bit in John 6. I think when we get to the Bread of Life sermon, there is times when Jesus says, are you following me for the right reasons? Is it because of the healing? Is it because of the free food in the Bread of Life? He provides bread miraculously. And I think his message is, no, it's not about being healed necessarily physically. Come unto me and have your souls healed. Live a certain way, and your life will be transformed. I think that's what he's shooting for. So I like that as a possibility as having people follow him for the right reasons. Another possible reason why he told the man to be silent is perhaps it is showing Jesus's humility. Whatever the reason, the account shows us how Jesus downplays his miraculous work. So many times in the scriptures, he'll do this amazing thing, and then he'll say, hey, don't tell anybody. We see this over and over again, where he tries to restrict the spreading of his fame because of the miracles. We see it here in this chapter in Luke, but we also see it in chapter 8, verse 56 of Luke. But then we see it again in Matthew 9.30, Matthew 12.16. We see it throughout Mark. Throughout his gospel, we see it in Mark 1.34, Mark 3.12. There's so many places where he does this. So this is just not a one-time thing. And so if I had to choose one reason why he's telling people to be silent, and I had to pick one, and I, and I don't necessarily just like one, but if I had to pick one, it probably would be in association with his sermon in the Bread of Life, where he basically says, come unto me for the right reasons. This comment from Spencer W. Kimball might interest you. President Kimball said, I have been impressed at the number of times the Lord said, quote, go thy way and tell no man, end quote. And I have been led many times in my blessings when I felt that there was going to be special healing, that they were such people as would go out and shout it from the rooftops to say, quote, and when you are healed, tell no man who laid his hands upon your head, end quote. 
I think this takes away from me the temptation to want to be spectacular, or to want praise, or to want credit, and from them the urge to publish a sacred, intimate miracle. That relieves me. It leaves me more humble, and I am sure that I am in a better position to call down the blessings of the Lord again. I love it. And so after he heals this man, he does, like it says in Luke 5.16, withdraw himself. He goes into the wilderness and he prays. So here in Luke 5.17, we read that he's in another place. It came to pass on a certain day as he was teaching that there were Pharisees and doctors of law sitting by, which were come out of every town out of Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was present to heal them. And behold, men brought in a bed, a man which was taken with palsy, and they sought means to bring him in and to lay him before him. And when they could not find by what way they might bring him in because of the multitude, they went upon the housetop and let him down through the tiling with his couch into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, meaning Jesus, he said unto him, Thy sins are forgiven thee. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, Who is this which speaketh blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answering said unto them, What reason ye in your hearts, whether it is easier to say, Thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, Rise up and walk? But that ye may know that the Son of Man hath power upon the earth to forgive sins, he said unto the sick of the palsy, I say unto thee, Arise, take up thy couch, and go into thine house. And immediately he rose up before them and took up that whereon he lay, and departed to his own house, glorifying God. And they were all amazed. Adding to that, Jesus calls himself, in verse 24, the Son of Man. We see this at the end of John 1. The Son of Man is the individual that will fix broken things, bring about the resurrection, cast out the wicked, bring in a new heaven and a new earth, and he's spoken of in Daniel, but he's really spoken of in all the literature outside of the Bible, in the extra-biblical literature, in the writings of Enoch and Esdras and others. This Son of Man is the cosmic king, and he is the one that will come before the Ancient of Days. And Jesus speaks of himself as as the Son of Man, and then he performs an action that is miraculous, an action of a God, fixing a man who's completely and entirely broken. And in this reading, it doesn't say it here in Luke, but in another reading, it's really interesting what he says. In Matthew 9, verse 4, it reads a little bit differently. We put the translation for you right out of the Greek in the show notes, but here's the English translation. Jesus, seeing or knowing their inner desires, he said to them, why do you ponder evil in your hearts? You see, in Matthew, their inner thoughts are evil, but in Luke, their thoughts are conveyed as being reasoned out or calculating. Dialogazeste is what it says. In, in the Greek of Luke 5, they're reasoning and calculating in their heart. But in Matthew, they have evil in their hearts. Another interesting distinction here we read is that Jesus fully knows what's going on in their hearts, at least in the Luke translation. Epignos is Jesus literally sees their thoughts, knows, fully knows their hearts in Luke chapter 5, verse 22. That's who he is. And I like this for a lot of reasons. First of all, it's awesome that he heals this guy, but even greater than a fixed body, 
is a fixed soul. And I think Jesus is really trying to emphasize, yes, I came to fix broken things, but the greatest thing that is broken that must be fixed is the healing of men's souls. And I love what Jesus is doing here because he is making it very clear that his miracles prove that he is what he claims to be. He is, in fact, the Messiah. You cannot accept Jesus as a moral teacher or a good man. That's what he's trying to do here. He says, wait, which is easier? Or in the JST, does it require more power to forgive sins or to cause someone to rise up and walk? But that you may know, I'm going to paraphrase a little bit, that you may know that I am who I claim to be. I will do all these good things. I will do all these miracles. It's not the culmination of what he's trying to do in our lives, but his miracles stand as a testament that he is not a moral teacher. He is the Son of God. I love how C.S. Lewis worded it. He said, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. Quote, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. End quote. Now, C.S. Lewis continues, that is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. End quote. When he walked into that synagogue in Nazareth and said, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears, everyone who heard him knew exactly what he was claiming. He was claiming to be the Messiah that that verse prophesied of. He is saying, I am he. And then he does miracles to prove that his words are true. His miracles prove that he was, in fact, who he claimed to be. This is a powerful moment in his life, because it's easy to say your sins are forgiven. It's hard to cause a paralyzed man to rise up and walk. But if Jesus can cause the paralyzed man to rise up and walk, then he can and does forgive sins. Yeah, what else can he fix if he can fix that? So then after this experience, he goes to Levi who is a Talones or a publican, as it's called, or a tax collector, and he says, follow me, and he does. Levi makes for him a great feast in his own house with also a great company of publicans. So remember, these guys are the hated group of society, but they also, many of them, have wealth. And so the issue that's brought up against Jesus is that he's hanging out with these people that are, quote, publicans and sinners. That's Luke 5.30. And then his response... They that are whole need no physician, but they that are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners to repentance. The irony to that is, of course, the people accusing Jesus, they are missing the mark, as it were, as well. They just think they're not. And so then their accusation is going to come to him based on tradition, 
This is not anywhere in the 613 commands of the law as it's contained in the Old Testament, but they come to him and they say, why do the disciples of John fast often and make prayers and likewise the disciples of the Pharisees, but thine eat and drink? How come you guys are eating food? Now, because they're saying this, my guess is that this feast is probably on one of the fast days that the individuals that were super duper religious were following. The Pharisees had like this new thing going that you needed to fast quite a bit. Now, there were fasts that were tied to the Day of Atonement. In Leviticus 16, we read this. We also read that there were four day-long fasts that the Jews held to remember when the temple was destroyed. And there were also fasts that were used for penitence. We read this in the Old Testament. But the Pharisees had developed fasting into a regular practice. Twice a week, on Mondays and Thursdays, they would fast and intercede for the whole nation. Now, this is actually even in the DDK, but we also read this hinted in Luke 18, where we read this explanation of two people that go to the temple and pray, and one's a Pharisee and one's a publican. And the Pharisee stands up and he prays in Luke 18, verse 12, I fast twice a week and I give tithes of all that I possess. And then the publican prays and he's like, forgive me, I'm a sinner. And essentially... Like if you were a hardcore Pharisee and you were doing Pharisee things, you really were fasting twice a week. Now, this is just me, Mike Day. I love food. I'm so into food. And I'm thinking twice a week, that's got to be something else. And so for me, when I read this bit in Luke and they come to him and they say, how come you guys are eating? The only way it makes sense in my head is they've been caught eating on one of these days when the Pharisees don't eat food. And so it tells me a couple of things. One of them is this. The Pharisees kind of had this expectation that Jesus would be like one of them and following those rules, and he's not. He's kind of breaking convention. And another thing it tells me is that they're judging him. They're basically like looking down on him. And his rebuttal, his answer to their question is really interesting. So you go to Luke 5, 34, it reads, can you make the children of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom shall be taken away from them. Then they will fast in those days. Now, there's lots of different ways to read this, but one way to read it is, I'm the bridegroom, Jesus is saying, and this is the wedding. I'm here to claim my bride, the kingdom, and right now we're going to eat food. But one day they will fast. And then he gives them this statement about wine and wineskins. It says bottles in the text, but they would actually use animal skins to put the wine in. So it's verse 36. He spake a parable unto them, no man puts a piece of a new garment upon an old. If otherwise, then both the new maketh a rent, and the piece that was taken out of the new agreeeth not with the old. No man puts new wine into old wineskins or old bottles, else the new wine will burst the wineskins or the bottles and be spilled and the bottles shall perish. New wine must be put into new bottles, and both are preserved. James Talmadge explains, In such wise did our Lord proclaim the newness and completeness of the gospel. It was in no sense a patching up of Judaism. He didn't come to mend old and torn garments. The cloth he had provided was new, and to sew it on the old would be but to tear afresh the threadbare fabric and leave a more unsightly rent than the first. Or to change the figure, new wine could not 
safely be entrusted to old bottles. The bottles here were really bags made of skins of animals, and of course they deteriorated with age. Just as old leather splits or tears even under the slight strain, so the old bottle skins would burst from the pressure of fermenting juice and the good wine would be lost. The gospel Christ taught was a new revelation, superseding the past and marking the fulfillment of the law. It was not mere addendum, nor was it a reenactment of past requirements. It embodied a new and an everlasting covenant. Attempts to patch the Judaistic robe of traditionalism with the new fabric of the covenant would result in nothing more sightly than a rending of the fabric. The new wine of the gospel could not be held in the old-time-worn containers of mosaic libations. Judaism would be belittled and Christianity perverted by any such incongruous association. I think essentially what James E. Talmadge is saying is this. We have to have something new. And in so doing, Jesus is going to be turning over the conventions of his day. And I cannot help but see the parallels with Joseph Smith and the Restoration. Clearly, the Book of Mormon has turned over some apple carts, and some people are saying, we can't have this. This can't exist. It can't be here because we have the Bible. The Bible is all we need. And Joseph stands as a witness and says to the world, well, if the Bible is all we need, then why do we have this garment with all these different pieces. And the Book of Mormon invites us to consider that God can work anew in our lives. Now, as someone who, for me, someone who reads the Book of Mormon and I see all these other layers, and one of them is this invitation to ascend and to come into God's presence, as it were, a temple text, I see this and I see the Book of Mormon and I see what Joseph Smith is doing with the saints and I see it as a grand invitation to come unto his presence. And it's portrayed in so many different ways with so many different images. And in the New Testament this year, as we cover this in Come Follow Me, Jesus is going to be doing those kinds of things. He will be using all kinds of different images depending on the audience. And he speaks to them after the manner of their language, their culture, their understanding. But his overarching message is, come unto me, the kingdom is among you, let's build it and let's do it together. And so with that, we thank you for listening. We will see you next week when we cover John chapters 2 through 4. Make it a great week. Talking Scripture is not an official production of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed in this podcast are Mike and Bryce's opinions only. We refer you to official church sources and the church website to clarify any doctrinal questions.